open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host at Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. We have a legendary interview today with Dr. Adam Back. He's cited in the Bitcoin White Paper, the Tor White Paper. He's a co-founder and CEO of Blockstream. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Adam. Thank you for having me again. <laughs> yeah, again, we, we had a week with Adam Back. So anybody who hasn't listened to that, I'd highly recommend it. We get, you know, just an hour-long episode, five of them. They're great. So, Dr. Back, what type of interesting things are going on today? Because you're, you know, at one of the companies that uh, gets a lot of the research and development done. I mean, you're creating the news. So, like, what's, what is some of it? Yeah, so uh, the most recent thing we announced is launching the Liquid Network. So, it's a federated sidechain that you can peg Bitcoin into. So, you can think of it kind of like a blockchain, but without a native currency so it uses bitcoin as the currency and you can move bitcoin into it and back out again and it's a federated chain so the blocks in the chain are signed by the operators of the chain and the operators in this chain because its function is to act as a internet as a settlement chain between bitcoin exchanges the operators are exchanges so there are 15 exchanges participating. So they've all been sent physical hardware boxes, so like a Unix server, and it has a kind of key isolation. So a separate sub-device inside it that has the keys to sign transactions. And uh, so it's able to process these blocks uh, more quickly because there's no kind of mining variance going on. It's really just about the network speed. So yeah, we've uh, sent out this hardware and uh, released a blog post describing what it does. And one of the main interesting features on it is confidential assets. So what exactly are these confidential assets and what might be some potential use cases with them? Right. So actually, you mentioned the previous conversations we had probably over a year ago now. Yeah, a couple of years ago. And uh, one of those, I think, was about confidential transactions. So we could briefly review what that is and then connect that with what confidential assets are. So confidential transactions is a way to encrypt part of the information in a Bitcoin transaction to get extra privacy and still be able to have third parties validate that your transactions are correct. And so there's a type of encryption called homomorphic encryption, which preserves an operation, so addition in this case. So you can start with a a Bitcoin that is worth, let's say, eight Bitcoins, but its value is encrypted. So people from the outside, they can't say how how many coins it is. They can't tell whether it's eight or 
800. But they're able to see that, you know, let's say we spent this eight Bitcoins, we spent three Bitcoins to a shop or something, or to do a transaction, and we receive five Bitcoins back as change. So what goes onto the blockchain is, is encrypted eight, and then the two outputs are encrypted three and encrypted five. So the you know the miners and people running full nodes can verify that encrypted eight adds up to or is equal to encrypted three plus encrypted five. But they don't know how they don't know anything about how much was just transacted. So the invariant that matters for the blockchain's integrity is that there are no new coins created, that the inputs add up to the outputs, and that the signatures are valid and that kind of thing. So you're still able to verify what's important, but you get some privacy for the value that you're transacting. And it has lots of interesting use cases. This was originally proposed on a Bitcoin talk post sometime before Blockstream in 2013. And we went on to implement it. Greg Maxwell uh, spent quite a bit of time optimizing the cryptography and making it more efficient and space, primarily space-wise. So we implemented that as part of the Elements open source platform, which is the base layer that Liquid is built using. So that's confidential transactions. And kind of use cases are that, you know, some people, when they're doing cold storage, they'll break their coins up into amounts so that they, if they want to do a trade, they don't reveal the entire wallet. Uh, so it's a way to get value privacy. And if they wanted to spend part of their stored coins, they wouldn't reveal how many coins they have stored. So that's one kind of use case. Another one is we've heard stories that people would do blockchain monitoring in order to work out transfers into exchanges and you know if they could see there was a large transfer going into an exchange in order to sell bitcoins then they would try to front run it or something so they could use it as an open source intelligence and so if the if the values are encrypted you deprive the competitor who's bidding against you from that information and you get better prices so those are kind of values when we talked about it initially you know it, it was appealing and interesting to you know at least three different audiences so the technical audience found it very interesting and intriguing that it's mathematically possible to do this. And the users at large like the idea and generally would be enthusiastic to see something like this eventually come in Bitcoin. And actually, we, we expected this, but it was borne out that the sort of financial ecosystem that was interested in blockchains for financial applications were also interested in confidential transactions and confidentiality because they viewed public blockchains as too public and, you know, they'd be worried about front running in open source intelligence and that kind of thing. You know, if you were doing your, uh, a lot of your business on a Bitcoin network, you're paying suppliers, people might be able to deduce by figuring out which addresses are yours, then uh, determining, you know, what your profit margin is or what you're paying suppliers. And obviously you don't want that as well as, you know, providing privacy for how much people are getting paid. Some people get paid in Bitcoin, you know, all, all the, uh, Employees at Blockstream are paid partly in Bitcoin, so you wouldn't want to reveal how much you're paid and so on. So that's the uh, case for confidential transactions. And then confidential assets is something else that builds and extends that. So another aspect of Liquid is it's a blockchain for that can trade transfer Bitcoins, but it can also support issued assets. So issued assets are user-defined assets. So you could look at Tether as an example of an issued asset. So there's somebody that's underwriting it. They keep 
bank accounts with the same number of US dollars as there are coins in the network. And you can audit the coins in the network and for what's in the bank account, you have to rely on like conventional auditors and that kind of thing. So, you know, we can we can have fiat currencies backed by issuers in liquids and people can also do other kinds of applications. There are people who've talked about putting basically gold ETFs where they're relying on a custodian. You could have a custodian for shares in existing public markets or private markets. And potentially as well, though that's not implemented at the moment, we have a peg for Bitcoin. So you can pay Bitcoins into the sidechain. Potentially you could peg other coins, Litecoin, Ethereum, or other coins. And it could be done in an automated way, or it could be done by an issuer who issues tokens and escrows the coins. And, you know, a reason to do it in a semi-automated way for some coins might be if the reliability isn't as good on those chains. Mm. Sometimes exchanges have to suspend withdrawals if there are blockchain problems on some old coins. And uh, so you wouldn't want there to be a fully automated withdrawal process in in a chain that's uh, not very stable. So you could, so that'd be an avenue to, to add those. Uh, or somebody could, you know, take the initiative and do that by themselves using and, liquid. And it appears the market has underappreciated the risk associated with these reorg attacks. Bitcoin Gold, for example, an exchange took an $18 million loss from a 51% reorg attack. Yeah, it's difficult actually for smaller blockchains to have enough security from mining, particularly if they're sharing a proof of work with another coin. So I think, you know, it's a hard to replicate thing, Bitcoin security. You could think of it as a kind of singleton thing. You know, there's one in the world and it's a hash race and you need, you know, the security model is there is incentive, but also the over 50% of the mining participants are honest and are also have a vested interest in the you know, continued existence of the chain so that they can get value for their investment in mining equipment. And often miners are also holding Bitcoin. But because of the proliferation of smaller uh, altcoins, there have been a number of uh, issues where people have struggled to have enough hash rate to keep their chain secure. And also there are um, situations where, I mean, there, there are tools even to automate kind of picking, switching chains quickly. So people will look for which coin is profitable by the minute and switch. And so that can make the small coins, you know, if the price moves, the hash rate can oscillate quite badly. Yeah. So that fourth network effect of security or miners is incredibly important when it comes to the immutability, the non-reversibility of right. of these blockchains. Yeah. So I think, you know, obviously some people took losses as a result of the uh, Bitcoin gold, as you mentioned, somebody has to take the shortfall and I guess it was the exchanges or the customers, depending on the timing. And I understand defensively that the exchanges have increased the number of confirmations needed for Bitcoin gold defensively for the time being mm-hmm. to defend against that. Something that people have done in some altcoins is to use merge mining so that there's less incentive to switch as you can, you know, if you can merge mine with Bitcoin or merge mine with a bigger coin, that's something additive. So miners will keep mining the same coin in that situation. It's another kind of defense. It's not, it doesn't solve the incentive problem, but it at least provides a stable hash rate. So when we're looking at these confidential assets operating on a federated 
two-way pegged sidechain. How much uh, extensibility or other usefulness are we going to be able to get out of them? For example, are they going to be able to then be interoperable or otherwise used in smart contracts of some some nature or you know, with scripting coming down with mast or stuff like that. Perhaps you could give us some examples on how we'll we'll be able to use these things. Right. So, I mean, the immediate thing you can do because the there are multiple assets on the chain is that you can make something with the effect of an atomic transaction, like an atomic swap, but more directly, which is in Bitcoin, you can have, you know, the Bitcoin UTXO model, you can have multiple inputs and multiple outputs. So in the extended, I mean, Liquid is built using the Bitcoin uh, code base and to benefit from its, you know, many years of security track records and security improvements. We've extended it so that you can have a transaction with different types. So you can have a single transaction that, let's say, has some US dollars in and some Bitcoins in or other assets that users or exchanges might issue. And... The extended rule is that the sum of the inputs of each type must add up. So that means, you know, if if I was to sell you a Bitcoin for six sixty five hundred, whatever the current price is, I could put one Bitcoin in, you could put sixty five hundred in, and sixty five hundred could come out to me, and one Bitcoin could come out to you, and that that would just be a direct transaction plus a transaction fee. Or it could be gold ounces or barrels of oil, whatever exactly. we've, we've actually yep. made this issued asset right. uh, denominated in. Yeah, so you can you can do that. And that's completely trustless and in the same transaction, right? So right. the, the so Bitcoins don't move and the dollars don't move unless both the Bitcoin and the dollars move. Right, exactly. So it's a sort of simpler, more direct way to do an atomic swap. And typically, atomic <clears throat> swaps are also... Even less efficient. I mean, you can do an atomic swap in Bitcoin where you swap one Bitcoin for bit- one Bitcoin, but that's not very interesting because they're both Bitcoins. And so yeah. there's a technique for swapping things on different chains, but it's more complicated and slow. That's the cross-chain atomic swap. So this this chain has multiple asset types, so you can do interesting swaps in it. And because of the extent, you know, the extensions we've made to the transaction model. You don't need to use a swap with a hash lock contract. You can just do the transaction and it will be atomic if you set it up correctly. And you mentioned uh, smart contracts. So there are some, we added some opcodes to um, Liquid. And so there are, for example, the key tree signatures are possible. We may look in a, in a future version to trial some things that may make their way into Bitcoin, like MOST and so on. We actually had Schnorr signatures in Elements some time ago as a, uh, as a way to you know gain experience with them. And actually, uh, the Liquid chain also has malleability fixes equivalent to Segwit, and that well, that also came before Bitcoin. So it's it's uh, you know there are cases where we were able to try things in Elements that later made their way into Bitcoin or were adapted to work with Bitcoin. So hopefully one day confidential transactions can make that leap. But uh, one of the debates with confidential transactions is a security trade-off with where you can have perfect privacy or perfect security, but not both. And how that looks is in the event that the discrete logarithm problem is broken, so we're not anticipating this for 20, 50 years or what have you, but if massive 
stable. There are lot, lots of unknowns in quantum computing, practical quantum computing. But if if that's met in a and you know it exceeds our expectations, hypothetically, it could damage the security of a discrete log. And in that case, um, Bitcoin would eventually you know would switch switch over to a quantum uh, secure signature algorithm or something. But and, and in that event, you you know there are two possible failures because of this security trade-off. Either you lose privacy, or people can create more coins and you can't detect it. So, you know, there's a debate of of which side. Now, I think generally most people would say that it's more important that the number of coins is protected. We don't want undetectable inflation. And in the meantime, we get privacy. And we have time to develop uh, quantum secure alternatives, which can preserve. So actually, Tim Ruffing, who joined Blockstream recently, is a PhD candidate, developed something called switch commitments, which kind of allows you to have a sort of delay the choice so you can decide how to work out a solution for this in a quantum secure setting later and preserve the ability to do that with existing coins without having to you know, have a flag day where you have to spend them by the time. So that, there's probably some, somewhere in that space of either going for security first or doing the switch so that we can develop a security solution for that uh, if the quantum computers get going at large scale. So yeah, there's the number of uh, smart contracting extensions in Liquid and we're interested in working to extend those and improve the functionality. Uh, we're also, you know, you can use the Liquid QT wallet, which is kind of like a Bitcoin wallet extended mm-hmm. for liquid assets. And we also have a version of a green address wallet in development that has support for issued assets. And we're working with the main uh, hardware wallet suppliers to add hardware wallet support for those assets so that people be able to do storage and you know that's the reason that that's uh, not straightforward is because the confidential assets involve more cryptography that ideally should be at least verified by the hardware wallet. So it requires firmware work. So you know they've added a number of altcoins with similar cryptography properties. So some of the altcoins uh, lifted, you know, sort of adopted confidential transactions um, or building blocks related to it. So that. You know, the, fun- the fundamentals for that kind of work has actually been done in some of the wallets. So that makes it easier to have confidential asset support on them. So we're looking to, you know, to add that too so that people have uh, the full complement of secure asset storage. And I think one of the interesting things you can get towards with once more of this is in place, if there are issuers for US dollar coins or Japanese yen coins or euro coins on liquid and you've got this atomic transaction method, you can set up a trustless exchange where you use a Bitcoin exchange to negotiate the price or to look at the order book, but the actual transaction is completed directly between hardware wallets that have control of the keys for US dollars and Bitcoins so that you basically solve the exchange custody problem. So then you'd be using an exchange as the Oracle then? Um, kind of, yeah. You would you would be looking. I mean, basically, you know, there are there are a few different techniques to do it. But one one way to look at it is that the person, you know, if I have bitcoins on a 
a Trezor and you have some US dollars on a ledger and I want to sell Bitcoins, I make a limit order that is signed and I, and I load it to the exchange. And now if the exchange is hacked, all they can do is pay for the coins. At the, at the at limit the price, order price. At the limit order price. So that makes it less interesting to attack the exchange. And obviously, you know, if I cancel limit order because the price moves, the exchange should delete the limit order. But generally and, speaking. And yeah. you don't give up custody of the, of the right. keys. Yeah. So it solves the uh, exchange custody risk for, I mean, you still have the custody risk of the underwriter or the person who's escrowing the US dollars and that kind of thing. But for the cryptocurrency asset, you retain custody of it. And you also avoid the, you know, there's, there's still an online risk. So for the issued assets like US dollar coins, you have a double risk. You have the risk that the person who has the US dollars spends them. And you have the risk that somebody takes the keys when you give to custody. So, you know, if you upload tether coins to an exchange, somebody could steal the coins, right? So you at least avoid all of the kind of online exchange risk. So I often like to talk about how gold is limited in amount, but extensible in the dollar. I mean, gold is limited in amount, but not extensible. The dollar is not limited in amount, but it is extensible. And then Bitcoin is both limited in amount and extensible. And some people who aren't very familiar with software development and, you know, the fifth network effect of Bitcoin are the developers. They kind of look at that term extensibility with a giant question mark on their face. Could you perhaps explain for some of our newer listeners, like what is what what is extensibility like what do we mean by that phrase well i mean bitcoin when it was first released already had uh, some smart contracting features and that's been extended a little bit in the bitcoin uh, development track there have been a number of soft forks for example the p2sh and multi-sig and there were a number of them segwit check lot time verify so a number of things to make to support use cases, basically. It's sort of driven by somebody has a good use case, then people will put the investment in to do that development. So the extensibility is that you can write a smart contract to achieve something without needing to write, you know, to customize Bitcoin to do your use case. And I mean, I think another kind of extensibility, so I made the comment recently that people make the the, the what if question that, you know, what if somebody were to find some new innovation like uh, an efficient snark or something that could change the game and improve efficiency of blockchains. And like Segwit, for example. Yeah. And so you test it on Litecoin. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the but they, they make the sort of what if question that, okay, what if somebody made a new, they make the assumption that the innovation would appear in a new coin and that that coin would compete with Bitcoin. But, you know, I have a couple of, Objections to that, one of which is most of the kind of cycles on research and development are actually in on the Bitcoin side, not all, but most. And the reason, you know, things that appear in other coins that didn't originate on the Bitcoin side are typically because they're experimental and high risk. So interesting, but maybe not dependable or secure enough yet to rely on. And so, so that's one argument. And the other argument is if, if that technology were developed, you know, some very interesting applied research made something new possible, then Bitcoin would adopt it. And you know, ultimately, Bitcoin can adopt any new technology because either you can add it to the existing system or you can start a new system 
and import the UTXO set of who the current owners of the coins are into the new system. So that's a kind of very generic model to adopt almost any conceivable innovation. So I think, you know, most of the value is actually in the network effects and the belief in immutability and the scarcity and predictable supply and so on. So, you know, if, if we see a way to greatly improve the technology, I see, you know, I think that's, that would be very acceptable and even welcomed by people who are using Bitcoin to see it become more scalable and more secure and more efficient in some way. So, you know, thanks so much for what you do in terms of all the software development and thought leadership and things of that nature. What are some of the things you're most excited about looking out into the future that's just not been evenly distributed to the rest of us yet? I mean, I think this is a quite interesting time for research and development in Bitcoin. And there's a, a lot of energy going into, you know, there, there are more developers than ever before, more sort of lines of code getting checked in, more review cycles. And you know, there's a lot of core level, like a base level layer one innovation, like the taproot work and Schnorr signatures and some features to improve lightning efficiency. So sort of a way to address fees. And then there's a sort of separate track almost of innovation on lightning with another large and uh, energetic set of developers working on the kind of core lightning layer two protocol work, but also a lot of, you know, wallets and store integration and applications, you know. So there are starting to be smartphone wallets for Lightning. We released at Blockstream. So Blockstream has C Lightning and there are multiple implementations. There's Lightning Labs with a Go implementation and Async with a uh, Scala implementation. So other than the base layer, there are also... We, we implemented a Blockstream building on C Lightning, Lightning Charge, which is a web store plugin to allow people to easily receive payments. And, you know, so another uh, developer developed something called BTC Pay, which is a way to, it's, it's just a way to receive Bitcoin for a store. And so he integrated Lightning Charge so that now his service can receive Bitcoin and Lightning Bitcoin. So it's you know, a very fast adoption cycle. And then you see also sort of novel new applications that would have been difficult to do with Bitcoin, like the different games and things like Satoshi's Place, where you can pay per pixel, like a Satoshi or something, to draw a pixel. So very low low cost payments. So people seem to have a lot of fun drawing various not safe for work pictures. <laughs> and they just keep drawing on top of each other's drawings. It's kind of like a big uh, graffiti wall. Um, it's pretty exciting. Yes, yeah, so there's a, a lot of innovation. And I think also the sophistication of the key management and custody solutions are improving to make it more foolproof, sort of remove some, reduce the possibility for error in losing keys. So, you know, the Green Dress wallet has a number of uh, interesting key management features where you can get the sort of security assurances of using two-factor authentication and a server, as well as custody. So it, it work, it's a kind of smart contract in the sense that it's a two-of-two two signature where you have one of the keys optionally in a hardware wallet, and the server has another key, and it won't sign unless you pass the two-factor authentication 
or other policies that you put in place, like a velocity limit. And there's a second branch to the transaction that after 90 days by default, if you're inactive, you can spend the money by yourself without the server. So that gives you kind of self-custody and a guarantee that, you know, even if something goes wrong with the server, you still have your own control of your coins. So other things like that are possible. So you, know, you could make another one that in a year's time, it makes it possible for your lawyer to take the coins. And, you know, if you've lost all your keys or you had a, you know, had a bus accident or whatever the uh, euphemism is, then your estate could get your coins in a fail-proof way, even if you've lost your coins or, you know, haven't haven't made it clear where you stored them. And that's happened recently with a well-known uh, cryptocurrency person who died. And I think there's like $500 million worth of crypto assets that, as far as I know, they haven't been able to recover so far. So they don't know where you stored the keys. Wow. So, yeah. So, you know, Satoshi Place is kind of a fun little application built on top of Lightning, and then it's got an API and all of these things. So we can actually see almost like third layer stuff getting built. Given your history with like uh, David Chom, perhaps you can recap a little bit of that in the the future when it comes to these anonymous digital cash, you know, this kind of holy grail of the cypherpunks. Yeah, so I think there's an opportunity for somebody to operate a Chom server, or I mean, there's another protocol by his PhD student, Stefan Brands, which... Uh, I guess Uprove is one brand name that's uh, been recognized for, is that, you know, somebody can run one of those servers and you pay the server Bitcoin, it scrolls the Bitcoin and it gives you the eCash tokens. So they have actually extremely good privacy, better than anything that's possible directly with any cryptocurrency, but they have a different trade-off. So they're, you know, they're vulnerable to the server going out of business, basically. It's a kind of central point of failure have almost perfect privacy. So it's an interesting trade-off for some types of payments where you're relying on the issuer for a service, for example. So we might see some updates on that soon. It could be some fun stuff. Before we close uh, the interview, do you have a word of advice or two for uh, for people in this space? I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, people get swept up in the moment, but the people working on the technology are just relentlessly generating, you know, more new cool ideas and pushing them out and making them real in software. So, and I think, you know, it seems that the, you know, the current market cycles always look dramatic, but if you look to the history, this is nothing new. You know, we've seen uh, peak to trough differences in the 70% range. Uh, so it's a similar concept, actually, to stock trading. You know, if you if you go to an investment advisor, we're obviously not giving investment advice here. We're just talking <laughs> about our observations. But you know, an investment advisor will tell you that um, you shouldn't invest in shares unless you intend to hold them for at least three years, but ideally five. And you know, if you need the cash, you know, in six months, then you probably should put it in a savings account or something that has no withdrawal penalty. So you can think about. Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies as that kind of thing, but in a more extreme sense, right? So the volatility is higher. And, you know, there, there is an expectation that volatility will decrease longer term as the markets get deeper. So we're certainly hoping, hoping that Liquid will help by providing access to liquidity because there are like amazingly 
big spreads in the market occasionally, even very recently. So around Christmas last year, there was a spread of uh, almost 10% between two major exchanges between Bitfinex and Coinbase. Wow. And actually, I, I took a pause in what I was doing to empty empty one exchange to take advantage of that spread because, <laughs> it you know, that was uh, not, not a sustainable thing. But, you know, those kind of spreads actually make it difficult to do some kinds of uh, transactions. You know, people want to make international remittance transactions, medium size, they can run out of liquidity on exchanges and things. So what Liquid provides is a faster way for people to do trades so they can you know, move fiat currency within minutes between countries and move Bitcoin and other issued assets. And so the increased liquidity should improve, you know, reduce those spreads and allow the people doing those trades to uh, make a profit from the arbitrage. There, you, you heard it there, hodl gang, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much for being with us. Adam Back, co-founder, CEO at Blockstream, original gangster cypherpunk. Uh, Satoshi sent you an email asking for input on the white paper, <laughs> right? So you've been around this since before Bitcoin existed and just uh, really an inspiration for so many of us. Uh, so thanks so much for being with us, uh, Dr. Back. Thanks for having me. Get a copy of the free Bitcoin guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate. Consolidate.